0: Welcome to the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. On this week's episode, a really cool guest. I've been excited and and, uh, wanting to talk to this gentleman for a long time. We've we've, uh, chatted online many times, and he was nice enough to send me a a copy of his book years ago that I I read, and that's kind of how I first got to know him. Uh, This gentleman uh, is a member of the American Kempo Hall of Fame, Masters Hall of Fame. He's an eighth degree black belt in American Kempo. But beyond that, he's written countless books and also very well known as Working in Hollywood and writing screenplays for movies and TV, uh, so very excited to have as a guest on the show today, Mr. Tom Bleeker. Welcome to the show, sir.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, and happy holidays.
0: Oh, same to you. Yeah. So, for the obviously, this the episode won't air for maybe a couple months, but we're recording this over Christmas break. So. <laughs> So, well yes. then,
1: Happy Holidays for Easter. There we hey,
0: maybe <laughs> hopefully it won't take that long to get the show going, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, so I obviously mentioned a few of your accolades there, but let's kind of go back to the beginning and just talk about where you got your start in martial arts. Now, was was Kenpo your first style? If I remember correctly, it was was it something to do with uh, you were getting bullied?
1: What got me into into studying martial arts was fear. I was in high school. There was an older kid uh, who was a year ahead of me who had threatened because I was started seeing a girl that he wanted to have to be his girlfriend. And uh, he said to me before the summer, he said, every day, every time I see you this summer, I'm going to kick your rear end. He used another word. (laughs) And he said at the bowling alley, at a party, at the beach, he says, wherever I see you, I'm going to kick your rear end. And I stayed home back then. We had three months of summer and I stayed home for the first two months of summer, just wouldn't leave the house. So I was afraid of this guy. He was bigger. He was stronger. He was, you know, all of that. And in the third month. I said to myself, you know, if you run from this guy, you're going to be running from people for the rest of your life. And you got to do something about this. And that's when I got the phone book. When I first began my Kempo in 1962, there were only a handful of schools in Los Angeles where I lived at the time. I was in high school. I was 16 years old. And uh, I opened a phone book. I didn't know anything about it. All I knew about really was I'd heard about judo and the judo chop the infamous judo chop. And I said, I, I need to study some martial arts or some karate or judo or something. And I opened a phone book and I saw Ed Parker's karate school down in Los Angeles on Los Angeles Boulevard. And I drove down there and I that's where I started. But there was only Ed Parker. There was Jerry Packard. There was um, Nishiyama had a, um, had a shotokan school oh. and Bruce uh, Tegner up in Hollywood. I think that was pretty much it. There might have been one other but there weren't there weren't there were only a few schools to start and ed parker was one of them
0: and now i suppose in los angeles there's probably hundreds if not thousands of martial arts schools to choose from
1: <laughs> oh yeah i mean there's almost uh you know, look up the martial arts schools of all different systems and styles in Los Angeles. And, uh, it's kind of, uh, difficult navigating through them all. But back then, and back then, a lot of people don't know, but Ed Parker back then was the only black belt in the system. Uh, and he was a third degree black belt. And when I first met him, he was 32 years old. Uh, so that's dating back a while.
0: So what, what were some of those first early classes? Like what are, what are some of the things that stand out in your memory? you know, obviously I mean, martial arts have been around for a while, but, you know, you, I don't think a lot of schools train like they did back then. I'm even look at, I, I look at the schools I trained in in the nineties, even compared to now. And it's, it's just, it's different. I mean, times have changed and I think they, you know, unfortunately you got to change the way you do things. It's- well,
1: the first thing was, I didn't know what to expect. I really didn't. Uh, I walked in there. I met a fellow named uh, Luca Polo who was a New York uh, radio DJ who had come out to Hollywood to get his break into radio. He was the fellow that appeared on the Lucy show with Ed. Parker in the the early 60s, I think it was in 62, probably around that time. Okay, But I didn't know what to expect. I walked in there. uh, I saw these strange, uh, you know, that looked like what everyone says, uh, pajamas, (laughs) uh, that uh, I I bought a gi for $12.50. I paid $20 and I showed up for my first class. I had no idea what I was getting into. And uh, when I saw what Kempo could do, my first first instructor was Sterling Pico talk. Okay. who later changed his name to uh, uh, Matt David. And uh, Sterling was a brown belt and a golden gloves boxer. And he was one tough hombre. Of course, to me, 16 years old in the 11th grade, I think I was just starting in the 12th grade. Uh, no, 11th grade, actually, uh, just about everybody was a tough hombre. But Sterling was, he was to one tough guy. When I saw the blocks and the kicks, mainly basics, and the first things we learned were escape techniques. But our class uh, amounted to a lot of basics, a lot of training in the Basics and the first, there was a warm up, then there was the basics training up and down the mat that lasted for the first forty minutes, and then we worked on a technique, and then we sparred a little bit. I actually started sparring in my first classes, but I don't recall sparring with other students in the beginning. I think I only sparred against Sterling, which was kind of hair raising actually, because you know, I mean, I just wanted to get that over with. There's no way I was going to touch him, and I had to avoid those fast hands and kicks of his. But it was it was good learning experience.
0: So then 1962, at that point, was had he started calling it American Kempo yet and started a lot of his changes, or was he still teaching more of the, the Chinese Kempo style at that time?
1: Well, I believe he did call it the American Kempo because my first certificate, which hangs on my wall, is in the AKKA, which is American Kempo Karate Association. Okay. I believe that's what that stands for. The a- AKKA was his first organization, later became the IKKA International. So he was calling it American Kempo in 62 because
0: it's on his certificate so what was it those first few classes what what you know what drew you to it what made you want to keep going with it you know a lot of people will try martial arts and and it's just not for them they'll give it up or it's too hard what what made you want to stick with it
1: well when i saw what this was with the blocks and the punches and the kicks and all i said you know what If I learn this, I'm okay with this guy. You know, it's going to take me a little while, but I'm okay with this guy. And that's what kept me there. It was something that I was going to be able to protect myself. I wasn't going for physical exercise. I wasn't going to make friends. I wasn't doing any of that. I wanted to learn how to fight. I grew up in a household uh, with a single parent. and I didn't have anyone to teach me how to fight. And so Ed Parker uh, was the one that, uh, and, you know, American Kempo was the one that taught me how to fight as a child, as a kid. That's why I stayed.
0: Nice. And th- think about your your very first belt test. Well, do you remember some of the stuff that was involved and some of the techniques you had to do? And so talk just a little about that first belt test if you remember it and that experience.
1: Oh, I remember it vividly because it was pretty simple. We didn't have back then uh, colored belts. We had we had uh, tips on our belt. So the white belt had four brown. Uh, brown uh, tips that you could earn. Your, your first grade was for one brown tip. And my test was simple. I had to perform short form one, which was the basics. I had to do the blocks, the stances and the kicks and perform short form one. And I had to recite, uh, I had to recite the creed and I had to give a history of Kempo. That was it. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, verbally explain the history of Kempo, recite the creed, perform short form one, do all the basics. And I think there, I don't think I had to do any uh, techniques. If I did, it might have been, uh, it would have only been escape techniques and there would have only been a handful of them, but that was pretty much it. And I think I uh, I earned my first brown tip. Well, I know what I did because I got the, I have the, uh, I have this on my wall. It was in January of 63. So it took me about six months to get my first, a little under six months, probably four months, five
0: months to get my first brown tip. Do you remember when he added in the the color belt to his style? I know that's yeah, something that a lot a lot of styles didn't do at first either. And it, I, think it, I think that a lot of that had to do with America and just needing something quicker. That's a lot of the theories I've heard about it.
1: Yeah, the uh, uh, the color belts came in with a franchising. Uh, the big franchising that, that came in in the early 70s late 60s and early 70s and uh, we, they changed over we changed over to color belt system you know, with a franchising that's how it came in There it was a package because uh, people who were coming into American Kempo with a franchising system they bought a package they bought the orange belt package then they bought the purple belt the, you know they bought the the actual package and it made more sense to have you know colored belts on the mats and packaging than it did to call it one tip package, two tip package, and to make it a standardized franchise that was going to be nationwide, and then of course worldwide, which it actually became. I mean, now they, you know, the whole big red um, our teaching manual is international. Everybody, that's what they go by. If you're in the I K K A, your your basic foundational uh, curriculum is that is big red. Okay. And then
0: when you first got involved in this, did you ever think of competition at the beginning? I know as you got in higher belts, you did start competing and doing some tournaments. Was that something that you wanted to do initially? Or I guess maybe, I mean, would he let people compete at lower belts? Did you have to be a certain belt to go to a tournament back then?
1: No, I didn't because there weren't any tournaments. okay. The first real tournament, I mean, there were around, they were around, but Ed Parker's students did not compete in tournaments until the internationals. To my knowledge, there may be somebody who could Correct that. A person would be uh, Chuck Sullivan, who's my closest friend in American Kempo. Okay. Uh, the first, the first tournament he competed in was the Internationals, along with me, in 1964 in Long Beach. We did, however, have interschool tournaments. We had uh, Chuck Norris's people came to our school, the West LA School, several times in 1963 and in 64, where we we actually competed. Uh, it wasn't a tournament. No one awarded any trophies, but we sparred, our students sparred with their students. That's the closest we came to sparring anyone outside of our school. Of course, you could go to another school, I suppose, and spar with them, and maybe some of our guys did, but there weren't any other Kempo. The only other school really was uh, Jerry Packard and Nishiyama, uh, which is a Shotokan school. Mm -hmm. So the the beginning of the tournaments really happened in August of 1964, and by that time, I was a brown belt.
0: Okay, and I know I've I've been only lucky enough to go to one international. I got to go in nineteen ninety five, and even then, I mean, how many years later? It was still quite an experience. It's a it's a cool tournament, and I I never got to go unfortunately when when Mister Parker was still alive. But it was still a pretty cool experience, and it's it's still you know you know even then it was still one of the biggest tournaments in the country. So it's kind of cool that you know you were there for the beginning of that starting out.
1: Yeah, I fought in the first one and the second one, and uh, you know that tournament we started at the. Uh the Long Beach uh, Municipal Auditorium, and uh, it became so big that first tournament, the the amount of people who showed up for that tournament, it was an experience. I mean, it was uh they never saw so many competitors. It went until midnight. I think after midnight in the first night and the second, they Ed Parker had to get out before midnight or he'd have to pay more money for the hall for to use the auditorium. <laughs> it was so big and it was so successful that they next year they went to the sports arena, the Long Beach Sports Arena, and then it, it for years and years it became the number one tournament to win. That's the one that got everybody started and i mean all the big names uh mike stone and joe lewis and chuck norris and, and y- you know uh, benny archides and all of the big name fighters I pro- i've left a whole lot out of oh, them yeah out of that list but that's where they got their start that's where frank Trejo, uh became known as a great fighter was at the international so that was the tournament to win billy blanks was another one who went on to to form uh taibo
0: that's right yeah and and some movies too a lot of, a lot of movies for him but now the, the, the cool thing about that tournament too is it, it was open to other styles which is you know not really the norm you know, you know a lot of tournaments are so closed and stuff and i think he was one of the first ones that said we want to take on other styles we want to see what we can do against other styles and other systems which was kind of cool
1: He might have been the first one to do that, although Robert uh, Trias, who was at the First Internationals, I think he was on the board, he might have had a tournament. I forgot where Trias came, either Texas or Arizona, somewhere out there. He might have had a tournament before that, but not that big. But the uh, the Shotokan stylists, they have their own tournament every year. Uh, I think it uh, was referred to, may still have it. It's called Nisei Week. I
0: think that's correct. Nisei Week. That sounds familiar. It's,
1: yeah. It was held in downtown Los Angeles. The big... Um, uh, back then, it was uh, Hideki Nishiyama, and then it was Oshima. Oshima still is trained, I believe, is still teaching, mm-hmm. and uh, very, very reputable. If you ever, well, you know, because you study Shotokan, you go up against good Shotokan fighters, you've got your hands full.
0: Yeah, they're tough.
1: <laughs> you know, these these guys can deliver basics like nobody else.
0: So now you got your black belt when you were 19 and, and, and also started teaching at that time. And, you know, through Kempo, you obviously living in California and through Kempo, you got to meet and mingle and, and train with a lot of you know, Hollywood people. And that kind of gave you your start that way. So, you know, who, who were some of the, the people you remember like training with some of the, you know, Hollywood elite?
1: Yeah, I, I didn't really train with any Hollywood celebrities because those people did not come into classes. They, they taught, they were trained uh, privately with Ed Parker and other people. So I never trained with them. We didn't have them in our, club. Uh, if, if there were, I, I wasn't aware of them and they didn't come to class. Okay. Um, but the Hollywood celebrities that I trained, who I later taught, probably the most noteworthy and uh, recognizable would be William Shatner. Uh, William Shatner was a student of mine for a long time. And he was a, a very gifted uh, camp voice, a funny guy, mm-hmm. a great guy and became a good friend. For many years, uh, for me, and then later uh, Blake Edwards, who was a Hollywood director who directed uh, Pink Panthers, uh, all of those franchise movies. I shouldn't call them franchise movies, but you know the Pink Panther movies. And you know he, Blake Edwards, got the uh, Academy Award for Life Achievement. So you get the Life Achievement Award with the Oscar. You you've got one hell of a career. But Blake Edwards became one of my students. He got my brown. He got his brown belt. For me, never got anything beyond that. Well, that's an accomplishment in itself. But he, he was my student for many years, and his wife, uh, Julie Andrews, uh, was a student. Uh, I taught a lot of, uh, Robert Loggia was a guy that I taught for, for a long time for a uh, for a television um, series called The Ferret, and Bob was a good student. I, I spent a lot of time in Hollywood, but I grew up in Hollywood, you know, I was not it really news to me. I, a lot of people, uh, I was working in uh, as a child actor, not an actor, but an extra. And then later, yeah, mainly as an extra, I first appeared on The Real McCoys. You're too young to remember that show, but The Real McCoys film, filmed at uh, Desilu Studios. And I heard that was my first appearance on television was The Real McCoys. I appeared in a corn eating contest against Little Luke <laughs> in The Real McCoys show. And uh, that was quite an experience. But I later on in the 70s, I was making movies. I, I, was, the, I was the guy that was, <laughs> became recognizable anyway in a movie called uh, The Carry Treatment. It was filmed at MGM Studios. And uh, I did that film with uh, uh, Jim Coburn, James Coburn, who was a student of Bruce Lee's. Yes. Okay. And uh, I was the hospital orderly that got chased all over the hospital by, by the police uh, because I had marijuana on me. <laughs> and uh so in the early 70s, the grass was a big deal. So after that movie broke, I'd be walking through Westwood Village and somebody's, hey, you're the you're the guy that got busted for pot, right? In that Boston Hospital. <laughs> That's awesome. That, that 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 scene is on YouTube, by the way. You go to my YouTube channel. That scene is on YouTube.
0: I will have to check that out. That'll be that be hilarious to watch. So uh, you you mentioned Bruce Lee. Obviously, you became pretty good friends with Bruce Lee. Kind of early on in your camp work career, didn't you?
1: I did. He uh, Bruce started coming into school. The first time I met Bruce, he he came into the Santa Monica School, which at that time was yeah it was the Santa Monica School. We called it Santa Monica before it was called the West LA School, and the first school was was um, the one by the freeway. Uh, the 405 freeway. And Bruce came in with a, another student, uh, uh was a student of his, James Lee, to see Ed Parker. and I didn't know who he was. I had no idea that these two guys showed up late uh, one evening. I was on my way out. And uh, these two guys walked in and I watched them do something. I said, boy, these guys are kind of impressive. And uh, that's when I first met him. But I left. I said, no, nice meeting you and left. The next time I saw him, where I could talk to him, was at the internationals in '64, where he gave his uh, legendary uh, a demonstration that really put him on the map in the martial arts world. When he stepped out in that in the Long Beach Municipal Auditorium and gave that demonstration, I guess it was maybe a 10-minute demonstration. Okay. After that, people knew the name Bruce Lee, and uh, then he started coming around, and I got to know him, and I started going over to his house, and you know, looking back. You know, I, I started wondering, you know, why did Bruce Lee have such an interest in me with all the people that he was around, a lot of big names, uh, he was around, Joe Louis, all the big fighters, you know, he was around, he was training, why would he bother with this kid in high school and all? Well, the reason why was because I knew a lot of people in uh, Hollywood. I was at that time, I was dating Diane Linkletter and Ed Parker had appeared on the Ed, our Linkletter show House Party. And I knew a lot of people in Hollywood, not for any other reason that I just grew up in Hollywood. I just knew my way around town and I knew a lot of people in the business. And I think that was an attraction for him. He said, this is a guy that can help me. Uh, I introduced him to to uh, Blake Edwards. He came up to Blake and Julie's house up in Coldwater Canyon and gave a demonstration out by the pool that that was the, after, the afternoon that he kicked me the length of a swimming pool uh, holding an air shield, thank God, uh, <laughs> an, an airbag. I'd never been kicked so hard in my life. I mean, this guy kicked me. I think I was airborne. I was running backwards and I landed in a, in a clump of wet ivy on my back.
0: Wow.
1: And I just remember the airbag went flying and I went flying. And the next thing I remember was Bruce looking over me and he said, hey, are you all right, man? And I remember in my mind to this day thinking to myself, "Thank God I had that airbag, because (laughs) that kick he would have broken every he would have broken my 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 sternum and my ribs, my whole chest would have been busted. It was that it was like getting kicked by a
0: horse." So he was as good as, as, as the rumors say. I mean, you know, now online, so many people arguing, you know, oh, he wasn't this good. It was all movie stuff. But and then there's people who actually met him and trained with him that said, no, he was that good. And obviously, he had he had the he had the goods. I think.
1: Well, I can I can attest to two definite things I knew about him. I sparred with him many times, and uh, and I didn't do very well. I didn't I, I didn't find myself to be uh, on an equal with him at all in sparring. But I don't know anybody who did that I know personally but i can attest to his power and his speed his power and his speed were phenomenal ed parker said at the tribute and elsewhere i think ed parker said that bruce lee was one in uh, one in 2 billion Wow. And he said, coming from a man like Ed Parker, that is one heck of a compliment. Yeah. I can share with you a story that in 1970, 71, I was doing a film at MGM Studios called Wild Rovers. It was a Western with William Holden and Ryan O'Neill. And Ryan O'Neill had a, uh, he he was a boxer. He was an amateur boxer. I don't think he was golden gloves, but he was a skilled boxer and a big guy. Ryan O'Neill was 6'1", 6'2", one, six two, two hundred. 200. Uh, and a scrapper. He was a real scrapping guy. Uh, he was afraid of anybody. And he owned a boxer named Hedgemon Lewis at the time, who was an up and coming fighter. And uh, Ryan had heard about Bruce Lee from me and from Blake Edwards, who at that time, Blake was directing Wild Rovers. And uh, we talked about it. He said, yeah, yeah. What's it? Yeah. What? He, he does Kung Fu. Yeah. I'm sure that's nice. No, I'm not. he does. It. So I told Bruce, I said, why don't you stop by the soundstage? some uh, one afternoon and he did he came by and suddenly Bruce Lee walked on the set and I introduced him to Ryan I said Ryan this is Bruce Lee and Ryan just towered over Bruce Lee and uh and Ryan said oh yeah you're the guy that does that gung-fu stuff And, and Bruce just said yeah that's right so he said well I'm a boxer you know and I'm this and Brian was, Brian was trying to you know uh, build himself up a bit which is Brian would do and and then Bruce did what he did to everybody not everybody but a lot of people that did it to me and I saw him do it to other people he looked at Ryan and he said try to hit me and Ryan said excuse me he said try to hit me that's what he said. He said, try to hit me and he stood there and Ryan said you want me to hit you he said yeah try to hit me and uh so Ryan danced around a little bit and threw a couple of punches got nowhere and then he got very frustrated and he started kind of going after a little bit more forcefully and all of a sudden Bruce Lee cut loose and Bruce went after him and about 10 seconds later, Ryan was bent over at the waist with his hands over his head saying enough I quit up! stop. <laughs> And uh, Bruce was all over him. I mean, he just, and then that was a wake up call for Ryan. He didn't, had not seen anything like that in Boxing World at all. And then Bruce said, and that's the speed. Let me show you what we have, the power of the legs. And he gave him a, a, a pad to hold. He said, hold this against your chest. And he kicked him into Ryan, slammed into a trailer. It was on the set, the soundstage so hard you could hear it, the sound reverberate through the soundstage. Blake Edwards later said that he thought Ryan's back trouble that he had for years started with that kick. Really? I don't know if that's true or not, but Ryan really got a a real lesson that day at the soundstage. Later on, Ryan and Bruce became friends, and I always knew they'd get along famously because they're kind of the same kind of guy. Mm -hmm. But Ryan, as a boxer, got a real education, a real schooling that day about about martial arts. And I think after that, he had a pretty good respect for the art. Nice.
0: So another kind of controversial one that you spent a lot of time around Ed Parker and stuff, and, and one of his famous students was Elvis Presley. Did you ever get a chance to practice or see Elvis in person? Because that, That's another one who a lot of people don't think deserved the ranks he got and don't think he was a truly a black belt and couldn't really do the technique. And did you ever get to witness that firsthand?
1: I never did. Okay. Uh, I was not, he was, I think Elvis came around the Santa Monica school occasionally. And there are pictures of him uh, working out with uh, some of the fellows at the Santa Monica school. I think the photo, the photo is pretty well known. If you don't have it, I can send it to you. And he used to come in there periodically and and uh, work out with these guys. I know my top black belt is Steve Walton. And Steve Walton has a photograph with Elvis. I know Jack Autry worked out a lot with Elvis down at the Santa Monica School. Jack is one of the one of Ed Parker's oldest black belts and one of the best. He's now married to Ed Parker's daughter, Yvonne. Oh, OK. And uh, yeah, Jack's a real old timer. He's been around a, a long, long time. And I know he worked out with, with Elvis uh, at the Santa Monica School and a number others but jack was probably one of the most noteworthy uh elvis presley i I never saw him work out i've seen film of him i can tell you what dave hebler has told me about him Mm Dave Hebler was one of the Memphis Mafia guys. Yep. He's written a couple of books on uh, on Elvis. Yeah, he's written one book called The Elvis Experience, written by Michael Miller with Dave. And Dave said essentially that Elvis may not have known all the forms and all of that, but he could take care of himself. He was a strong guy. He was a, a very highly coordinated guy. If you watched his uh, some of his uh what he does in his concerts he was no bumbling idiot i mean yeah. he he was an athlete and uh but dave said he could take care of himself and he was a he was a gifted martial artist did he know the entire tempo you know american tempo uh, curriculum probably not i can attest that he didn't but i would wager that he didn't. But there's a lot of guys walking around right now with high belts on that don't know the whole curriculum. True. That's not that's not news. So yeah, I think Elvis was very legitimate. And keep in mind that ranks of black belt after third degree in American Kempo are all based on service. There there is no way I often ask people, I say what what did you have to learn to go from fifth to sixth? Or what's the difference between a sixth and an eighth or an eighth and a tenth? They can't tell me. <laughs> there is no physical knowledge that you learn. okay. But there is service. Ed Parker said it's based in service. And I don't think there's anybody who helped spread American Kempo in service more than Elvis. I mean, I think it's a wide concert. I think wasn't that a record breaker I think in so. uh, the yeah. amount of people who s- watched that concert on cable and yep. television and everywhere? I think it was worldwide. And if you look at Elvis's guitars, he's got the American Kempo patch on all of his guitars. But
0: I do also remember that he he had the footage that, that from the documentary he was planning. I think that was finally released a few years back. You know, the uh, he went to a bunch of tournaments and and recorded uh, you know, some of the top Kempo fighters and Karate fighters at that time. It was gonna and he was gonna narrate the documentary. It was his original plan. I think the footage disappeared for like 30 some years before the documentary finally came out.
1: You're referring to the, um, God, what's the name of that? It was
0: like when they were Kings or something like that. Or,
1: well, well I think they later tried to make it into that. It was the, um, Oh God, I could, I wish I could remember the name. I've, I've it's,
0: um, I know I watch. anyway,
1: <laughs> what, what that came from, what that footage came from is Elvis Presley financed an American team of fighters to go overseas and to fight in Europe and to fight various places. Uh, uh, right. Oh, it's called the American Gladiators. Yes. And Elvis Presley financed, uh, the guy that put that together was George Waite, who was one of uh, Ed Parker's first generation black belts and uh, really a nice man, too, and uh, a, a brilliant guy. And George had put together the, uh, I think it something Gladiator. Oh, the New Gladiators. It's called the New Gladiators. Okay, yeah. And he put together a team of fighters that uh, Benny Urquides was on. There's a, a list of, of guys that fought on that. I could get you the list. I can't remember. I think I have one.
0: the DVD, actually. I think I bought it when it came out when they released it. And,
1: yeah, so. yeah. Uh, Tom Kelly is on that team. Uh, Benny Urquides is on that team. Uh, anyway, it was a team, and Elvis financed that. I think he financed the film. Of the new gladiators, plus he paid for the uniforms and the travel. And Ed Parker was uh, the coach of that team, I, I believe, or one of the coaches, because yep. he travels with him. But yeah, Elvis was the financial backer of that. And uh, I don't know whatever happened, what why that didn't, uh, wh- why that got into a problem with why it wasn't immediately produced as a documentary, but there was some either legal issues or something. Yeah. I think it
0: was who, who owned the rights or whatever. And it was in limbo for a while and yeah, politics like usual.
1: Well, I guess that's true. I mean, he was filming people that he might not have had a release form from maybe that was the problem, you know?
0: Yeah, something like that. But so now, as I mentioned in the beginning, you've you've written numerous books and, and you know the, the first the first well actually technically the second one. The first one I read was The Journey, obviously that when that came out, you know, I was still heavy into American Kempo and and that's when I first reached out to you, and that's when you sent me an emailed copy of Unsettled Matters, which I had actually I hadn't hadn't even heard of at that time, surprisingly, as a big of a Bruce Lee fan I was, but uh, so can you just talk a little bit about that book and kind of what what made you decide to write Unsettled Matters?
1: Well Unsettled Matters. Matters was my second book on Bruce Lee. And um, I had written the first book when when I did the uh, uh, tribute to Ed Parker in 1988. And it was held at the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles in the California Ballroom. Linda Lee was one of the guest speakers who came on behalf of Bruce. And I had not seen Linda for many years uh, prior to her coming to the uh, tribute. And uh, after the tribute ended that evening, she said that she'd like to talk to me and would I meet with her for dinner the following week? I said, sure, I'd love to. She had been, uh, been paid to write a book Um, bruce's life story it was going to become the movie dragon the universal movie and she wasn't a writer and she needed a writer to who knew hollywood and knew bruce and and someone she could work with and she asked if i would be interested in doing the book with her and i said yes i would and i wrote that book with her during the course of which we got married uh at just around the time that the book was released and i'm not married to her now but uh we we were married shortly after that. And uh, in that book, uh, the book did well, and the movie Dragon was well received. But I felt that it really wasn't a complete story of Bruce. And I felt that I had helped, helped to promote an image of Bruce that was really not entirely factual. And I decided to write that second book, Unsettled Matters, which, got, which really balanced out the story that I had written with Linda in the Bruce Lee story. And that's the reason I wrote that book. It gave a, a new perspective of Bruce, uh, in throughout his his lifetime, his childhood, and really addressed his death. Mm-hmm. Half of the first half of the book is his life. The second half is his death. And when people read about how he died and about the inquest and about the life insurance policies and so many of the things that were going on around him, and that no, he didn't die as a multimillionaire. He died broke. A lot of people didn't understand. A lot of people didn't understand the deals that he had in Hong Kong and how he was used in Hong Kong and how he had Been misrepresented, or not at least thoroughly represented. He had when he died. He had all those movies he made. He had no contracts. The only contract he ever had was uh, for this his last movie, uh, Enter the Dragon. And so I felt I really wanted to write a a more I don't want to say necessarily more honest, but at least a thorough book on Bruce. So that's why I wrote that book and okay. it became a bestseller. I mean, it took a while, but it—it's now it's now it's been very widely well received.
0: Okay. So now obviously being a friend of his, just curious, your opinion. how do you think Jason Scott Lee portrayed him? And I, I know a lot of the stuff in the movie maybe wasn't accurate, but how do you think Jason Scott Lee did portraying Bruce Lee?
1: I thought he did really well. I mean, I, it would be really hard to come in and, and to, uh, to really capture the essence of Bruce. But I think Jason Scott Lee, I think he did an excellent job of, of portraying him. And he had to learn, uh, learn to look like Bruce in a matter of a, a few months. And I think he did a great job. I think there was a lot of the things in Dragon that I didn't, that really bothered me. So many things, so many things that were done in Dragon that that just didn't happen. You know, that I'll, I'll, I'll give you one of the scenes in there that, that bothered me was mm-hmm. the scene where Bruce is in the hospital. He's been allegedly kicked by somebody and, and uh, he's in the hospital he's in traction. And uh, his, what, Linda comes in and the doctors had told him that he will never kick again. And he's finished. And she comes in and shows him, look at this, your, your book, um, uh, Jeet Kune Do. Uh, J- what was the book? The, the JKD?
0: The Tao, JKD. Tao of Jeet Kune Do? Yeah.
1: You can go yeah. look, it's been published and all this. Stuff. None of that ever happened. None <laughs> of that ever happened. He never went to hospital. He never had that serious back injury that put him in traction. He wasn't, no one ever told him he would never kick again. None of that ever happened.
0: Well then but the no. book came out after he died, didn't it? The
1: book came out after he died <laughs> and thought. he didn't write that book. So I saw that and I said, you know, this is just this is beyond. You know, when you're doing a a biography as a movie, there's a license where you can kind of stretch things here and there. But this was beyond the peril. This this was a little too much as far as I was concerned. And, you know, ironically, in the book, um, the Bruce Lee story that we did, there are pictures of him in the desert in India. And he's doing these flying sidekicks. Well, right around the time he was supposed to be in traction, having been told you'll never kick again. He's doing these flying sidekicks on the Indian desert. So it just, you know, there was a lot of that. But the movie itself, I guess it was good entertainment.
0: Yeah, it was, it was, a it lot was entertaining.
1: Of thought It was great entertainment, but factual no.
0: Uh, the sad part about that is like, I'll see internet arguments about Bruce Lee on like Facebook groups and stuff. And people will basically quote stuff from that movie as fact. I'm like, that's your whole basis for fact is that movie? <laughs> do a little research.
1: <laughs> well, that's the problem when you do something, when you go out to the, ma- the mass media goes out and presents, you know, a life of someone that just isn't factual. Not that a lot of it, what they put out is factual. But right. when you start putting out things that, that Bruce could have beat all of the great tournament fighters he was the toughest man in the world. When he died, he, he he was a physical specimen that wasn't. No, he was very sick when he died. He was he was in bad physical, you know, shape. When he died, he weighed 100 and less than 120 pounds, around 120 pounds. Wow. He was emaciated. He was he was not in great physical shape. So you start putting these things out about this man that's bigger than life and and is uh, in remarkable physical health and he was the toughest man on the planet. Then you say, oh, and by the way, he died from a single tablet of an and an aspirin of course people are going to be alarmed they're going to right. say there's something wrong with this story well the way it's presented there was something wrong but in my book when i started laying out what had happened they said well now this is more understandable this one i get you know
0: so do you think we'll ever get a good bruce lee biopic movie you think you'll you'll ever see one
1: I I hope so. You know, one thing that's common that's been repeatedly made about Unsettled Matters is a lot of my readers have said, thank you for giving us an image of Bruce Lee that they can identify with. It's a human being that there's, that you can be compassionate about and can understand and feel empathy for. You know, when I was writing some of the scenes and uh, some of the chapters in Unsettled Matters, I got choked up and my 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 eyes filled with tears because I realized the amount of pain that Bruce went through, the suffering that he endured, both physically and mentally and emotionally, to become the man he became. The price that he paid. The you know this man worked out harder than any martial artist ever in the history of martial arts or boxer. I've never known any boxer that worked out well. Maybe Ali did. Maybe. I don't know. There may have been some boxes that worked out that hard, but I know martial artists that I know. I mean, he what he paid to become the martial artist and the film legend he did. He paid a heavy price. And it was painful to watch and to read and to know what he was going through when he went to Linda and he said those that famous line. He said, "I don't know how much longer I can keep this up." He wasn't talking about the film schedule; that was part of it, but he was talking about living the life that he was having to live uh, to become a, 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 an international superstar. He paid ahead, really paid with his life. Really, ultimately, I mean, he right. never rested. He, he what he had to do to to complete that movie. So, you know, I hope that if they do a biopic of him, that they bring all that in, the emotional, you know, I'm reminiscent of the movie. uh, Have you seen the movie Raging Bull? Oh, yeah. Great movie. Okay, that's a movie that could be a a parallel to Bruce Lee. Uh, Raging Bull, the amount of pain that, um, what was the boxer's name? Uh It seems to my mind at the moment. Yeah, anyway, trying to uh, In Raging Bull, that, the boxer who was a true life story, uh, what he went through to become a world champion was phenomenal. I mean, the uh, he paid a heavy price, you know, to become the, the world heavyweight box. The, the, the was he a heavyweight boxer, middleweight?
0: Middleweight, yeah.
1: I think it was, yeah, it was middleweight, and it was the same with Bruce. I mean, he he paid a heavy price, and uh, when when I was writing about that, I I got I really came to really be a saddened, to to really feel tremendous compassion of his spirit and what he was willing to do, you know, what he was willing to give to become the man that he did as a martial artist and a screen star. It was very heartwarming, but also very, um, very hard to uh, to grasp as a human being. And I hope that somebody brings that out in a biopic, not just to say he was a great fighter and a great martial artist and a great teacher and a great all this and a philosopher, but to look at the man himself inside, his spirit, to what he was willing to achieve a goal that he believed in. It was a tremendous story there. And I hope somebody someday tells us. So I understand they're doing a um, a documentary on him now. Okay. Another one. Uh, and I hope that brings that out. I had talked with the producers of that documentary and I had a similar difficulty with the producers of this one that I did with, um, with the ones that were doing autopsy is that they wanted a lot of my documentation of my book. And I just can't let a lot of that out because a lot of it was done in, under confidentiality agreement. And I can't just name names and give interview tapes to people that i legally bound and ethically too as a biographer that i just can't give out this information i said i'll allow you to listen to some of it but i can't give you their voice i can give you a capsule of kind of what i was said some of it so anyway uh, but i know that they're doing a documentary that wants to tell a full picture of bruce's life story and they have a good heart Uh, The person doing it has a a good heart and they they really want to hold uh, Bruce to the highest esteem, and I'm sure they will, but they want to tell the story that I tried to tell in uh, in my book on settlement. In fact, that's why they called me. They had read my book and said they wanted me to come in and be a big part of the documentary and and I, I decided I just couldn't do it from uh, for the reasons I just told you. Okay.
0: So then, obviously, you, you've definitely made a name for yourself writing about martial arts. And like I said, the first book I, I learned about you was The Journey, the Kempo one. But some of the other ones I'm interested about, some of the other um, biographies you did. Now, did you seek those out or did they seek you? I know some of the ones that uh, jumped to mind are the um, Grandmaster Byung-Yu, Taekwondo Grandmaster, the Donnie Williams book. I mean, are those ones that you wanted to do or were you approached to do them?
1: Let me go back for a minute to the journey, because you originally asked me, brought that up, let let me mention about the journey. When Ed Parker died in uh, 1990, there was, uh, our, our Kempo community became fractured. No one had anticipated him dying at the age that he did. And a lot of people went out and formed their own organizations and all that. And basically 10 years down the road, I felt that if a book were written, it had featured the top you know, 24 martial artists in American Kempo that this would help bring our community back together. And it did just that. It was a very successful book that, that uh, debuted at Bally's Hotel in Las Vegas. And, and that weekend of the debut of the journey book was really one that all of us who were there will never forget. And since then, there have been two more journey books that have been written over the past uh, 20 years that are now the Journey uh, Trilogy, the, the Journey, the International Journey, and then Journey Book Three, which features the new up and coming, uh, highly established new generation of, of Kempo greats that are on the horizon. So that series of books has been very successful. And I think we'll, we'll, has been a great add to the Kempo community.
0: Now, wasn't there a fourth one that you didn't have anything to do with? Was that something that were you involved with at all? There was a a female, I can't remember her name. Yeah, There
1: there was a book, I forgot her name at the moment. There was a book that was done that was uh, basically uh, the same idea of the journey book, but it was a really small instead of the chapters that I had in my book were, uh, I think they each chapter was 4,500 words, and each one had uh, two dozen photos, maybe I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. This book, each person who wanted to tell their story had to tell it within, I don't know, two pages, you know, two or three pages, okay. and one picture, maybe that was it. So it was a really mini version of anybody who wanted their story told. I think, I don't know if they paid to get their story in there. Maybe they, I don't think they did I, I think they could come in just to get their story in? But then the person that did it knew that the people that were in would buy copies, and so that was the basic idea. When I did the first journey book, a lot of people don't know this, but the people that made the most money on the book were the honorees themselves because I told them, I said, you know, you you can buy you can buy a discounted copies of this book for forty percent discount. And I will freeze the market for 30 days. In other words, anybody wants a copy of this book for the first month, they've got to get it from you. Okay. And you'll sell it to your schools and your followings and your organizations. And that's where you will make the money, your royalties from the book. And I did. Uh, uh, I know one individual bought 400 copies. Wow. And, um, and others, and there were a great number of them, uh, a fair number of them that made more money than my publishing company made. uh, which is was the idea I wanted in the beginning I wanted these people to make uh, you know uh, some money for their time and because it was their you know being who they are many of them are still teaching that, that made the the book work they were the you know, the legacy of American Kempo or a, a major part of it. So uh, that's, the, that's the way. And I'm sure that that fourth journey book did the same thing that the people could buy books, maybe at a discount and then resell them. Something like
0: that. Back to my other question then about the, the some of the other biographies you've done on other martial artists were those, you like said, were those, you know, your ideas or were you approached to do it and wh- what kind of led to some of those? They
1: were all, they were all different. Uh, the Beyond used, uh, you know, a very gifted martial art who was known as the, uh, As the uh, killer Korean. He was known on the tournament circuit as as the killer Korean. And he became very, very successful man in a lot of different areas. He worked he taught a lot of celebrities. He had his own studio, believe it or not, at CBS Studios. The head of CBS Studios gave him a whole wing of uh, near the parking lot uh, that became his dojo. And uh, he's very well known beyond you. And he came to me and asked me if I would write his um, his life story. I can't remember how we, oh, I remember how it happened. He had gone to Joe Himes first to do the book. And Joe was writing a book for uh, Norris at that time. He was writing uh, Norris's, I think the third book Joe had done for Chuck Norris. Okay. And he just couldn't do it. And Beyond said, is there anybody you could recommend? And Joe said, there's only one. And he referred him to me. That's how I got writing the book for Beyond You. And it was written for Hay House uh, Publications. Hay House at that time owned the self-help industry, May still, very highly successful uh, a publication company. But I had to be approved by Hay House. And uh, so I submitted some of my books to them and they read some of my writing and they they approved me. And uh, I wrote the book with Beyond. It's a good book. It's a good book. It's done very well. Beyond now is well into his 80s, isn't he?
0: Yeah, he's got to be up there, yeah
1: very gifted martial art. If there's a guy that ever worked out as hard as Bruce got close to in the martial arts, be on you.
0: Oh, okay. Good to know.
1: He would do a thousand kicks a day. He was even uh, in, after he was well into his seventies, he was giving uh, a demonstration. Well, I went to a demonstration with him. It was held at CBS studios. One of his uh, top students is, uh, was the head of Warner Brothers, uh, Alan Horn. Was the head of Warner Brothers for years. Huh? One of uh, Beyond used uh, students' black belts. Uh, he's taught uh, a lot of them. Anyway, he did this uh, this physical demonstration at CBS Studios. It was quite impressive.
0: And then what about the the Donnie Williams book that that one I, I I didn't know about that one I just found that one on your website when we started talking about this so that's another one I'm going to be ordering to read that looks like a really good book
1: it is and it's been well received Donnie Donnie Williams was a was a guy that was very successful uh, he was very involved in the BKF and um, he fought in the tournaments for many years he was known as the clown of the tournaments he would he would show up in a Bentley or a Rolls Royce in a big flowing cape and these and these incredible wardrobe that he come flying in there with. And he was quite a spectacle, but he was also a good fighter. And uh, he at that time was a devout racist. I mean, a, a, and admittedly hated white people, hated white men. And that's the reason why he's, he claimed that he did so well in fighting in the tournaments because he just, it fueled the racism and the hatred he had towards whites and he'd just go after them. Wow. And he he was a good fighter, but he was all fueled by racism. And then one, one time at the internationals, uh, he, he had entered the tournament when he was out of shape and some white man had goaded him. He was, uh, Adani was there as a judge. And some white guy came over to him and started badmouthing him because of he made a call against the guy's kid as a judge. And the guy said, oh, you're nothing but a has-been. You're just all wiped out. You're a nobody. You're nothing. You know. And, and Donnie said, oh, really? So he entered the tournament. He, he went over to one of his friends. He says, give me your gi. You You know, I need a belt. Give me a black belt. Give me a black And he entered the tournament <laughs> only to beat this guy. He said, I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to beat the daylights out. I want to teach this guy a lesson. And he entered the tournament. It's in the book. He went into the tournament. He entered it. And by the time he got in the finals, it was these two guys that made the finals. But he knew... And he couldn't beat him. He just knew it. He'd watch this guy fight. He said, "He said I'm not going to be able to beat this guy." And he went in the Long Beach, in the Long, the third floor of the Long Beach Sports Arena. And he went in the men's room and he got on his knees in in one of the stalls. He was in the men's room by himself and he prayed to God and he said, "You help me beat this guy and I will serve you for the rest of my days." And he went out there and he miraculously beat the guy. And from that moment forward, he parked God. He said, well, thanks, God. It's been great. And he went on his own and he started making movies, started doing all that. And then during an interview one time, somebody said, so after he told the story, he said, so what have you done about serving God? And that got him. That got him. He realized he had done nothing. Wow. From that moment, he left the business as an actor. He stopped all that and he became a preacher. He became a minister. He became a pastor. I think he calls himself a pastor. I don't think he says he's a a preacher. He's a pastor and he's the head of the family church. And um, I was so moved by his story when I heard it because I interviewed him. He was one of the journey honorees in the original journey book. When he told me this story of what had happened to him and how he had come to God, I said, you know, this guy, his story really needs to be told. And um, and because of that book and the telling of that story in that book, I got a call shortly after the book came out from Pat Robertson from the 700 Club and said, can you put me in touch with Donnie Williams? You want him on my show? And he got on the Pat Robertson show, the 700 Club. And following that, he got on the biggest show at that time, uh, TBN Broadcasting uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network (TBN), and he got on the Praise Hour. They gave him a full hour to talk to 23 million people. Wow! So that book and his life story got him in front of millions and millions of people. And he's a good. He's a. He's a great pastor. He's a man of God. No question about it. He's a. He's a lovely human being. He still is a good friend of mine. And uh, but he's a. He's a man of God, and he has devoted his entire life. Uh, to the to to God he really has he's he walked away from a whole lot of stuff and and now uh, is a full-time uh, pastor very well loved by a lot of many many people. Uh, and still a, a great martial artist, in my
0: opinion. Okay, well, I'm definitely adding that one to my list. I, lo- I love reading. So I'm, uh, anytime I have a guest and they mention books and books and books, and obviously you've written many, so I'm going to be adding a lot to my list. You'll, but... you'll, you'll thoroughly enjoy that one. Okay. Well, one other one I wanted to, to touch a little bit on before, before we get to your newest book is uh, one of my favorite martial artists that I, I've, I've looked up to for a long time is Benny the Jet. Uh, you, wrote, you wrote his biography, and uh, I know you've known him for a long time, too, and c- kind of talk about that one just a little bit.
1: Yeah, Benny, uh, Benny was uh, he go, he'll go down in legendary martial arts hundreds of years later, for, for, he, he's immortalized as one of the great martial artists of all time. I, of course, known who didn't know Benny or Keith, from the internationals and his kickboxing record, and he was just a legendary, the Jet center and everything else. He was a, he was a household word in martial arts. And I was at a um, function one night. Uh, it was a dinner function. Uh, in uh, it was uh, maybe, I want to say, two, three hundred people there for dinner. And uh, I was standing before the dinner, before this whole thing started up, and I was sitting, it was like a cocktail hour, but there were no no cocktails, really, just people. Uh, standing around talking and suddenly there was this silence that came over the whole room I mean somebody turned the volume down in that room by 90 percent, and it got my attention I said what what happened did somebody what happened in here that suddenly people stopped talking and I looked up to I looked away from the person I was talking to and I saw that everyone was looking towards the entrance and I looked over and there was Benny Benny her kiddies had walked into that room and it was a big room it was like a it was a big room it was a banquet room but it was big he had walked into that room by himself and he was looking around for somebody or looking around for his table or something or maybe he was looking for his wife Sarah who might have come in early uh, moments before or whatever it was he was just standing in the doorway by himself and they were looking at him and they weren't talking and I said to myself wow the only other person I had seen that happen with the other two were were Bruce Lee and Ed Parker. Oh. And I said, man, there's a reason for this, this man. So I had sent, I sent Benny a letter after that. And I said, if you'd like to get together and talk about your biography, writing a biography, I'd like to talk with you about it. And somehow that letter never got to him. I thought, well, he's just too busy. Never, he didn't want to do the book or whatever. And then I saw him a year or so later, and I said, gee, it's a shame you didn't want to do your biography. I was kind of looking forward to it. He said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, I sent you a letter. You didn't. He said, what letter? You didn't know anything about it. So when we talked about it, he said, yeah, he really much, very much wanted to, would like to do the book. And so I met with him and I interviewed him over the course of many, many uh, meetings and he was, you know, Benny impressed me, still does. He impressed me so much because I always ask anyone I'm doing interviews with, no matter who it is, I said, you know, where do you, what's the general flavor of this book? You want this a vanilla book? Do you want this a middle of the road? Do you want this a tell-all? What do you want? And Benny said, I want to tell everything. I'll never forget this. He said, I want the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want it all in there. He said, I was holding nothing back. He put everything in there. All the good stuff is in and all those not so good stuff. But he talks about his drug use. He talks about his his, uh, well, he went to prison, you know, I'm surprised he put that in there, but he said, no, I, I was oh, sentenced wow. to, to prison. He went to jail. He was jailed for assault. And uh, he put it all in there. And it's also the wonderful thing about Benny uh, uh, in that book is, and I hope someday someone's doing going do a movie, it's a wonderful love story. His love story with Sarah, his wife, he's, they're still married, very happily married. There's a wonderful love story in this book about how this guy, it's almost, you remember the love story in Rocky? Oh, it's yeah. kind of that same thing. Sarah was this goody kind of person that did everything right and, and she just, you know, and she got tied up with this bad boy and winds up going to jail and he thinks he's that she's finished with him and he gets out and he gets his life somewhat together and somewhat successful. He buys a new car and he says, I'm going to drive over to Sarah's and I'm going to tell her because I know she hates me and I, I know and I want her to know that I'm not the rotten down. I'm going to give her a piece of my mind. And he drives over there, he knocks on her door. She opens the door and before he can say anything to her, she she says, oh, Betty!" And she said she throws her arms around him, as I recall, and she was he couldn't get a word out. And from that moment on, they were Together. Wow. And there's it's, it's a wonderful love story about he he goes out and he, he she says I'll marry you but you've got to get a real job. He does. He goes out digging holes at a golf course. And um, she was a driving force behind him or or a major force in him that made him uh, become the great kickboxing champion that he became uh, was Sarah. He was doing a lot of this for Sarah. He gave up drugs and alcohol. He gave up a whole lot of stuff for her. Today, he's a remarkable, highly successful person. He's one of my best biographies. And I just uh, I'm very proud of that book that we did together. I think he is, too.
0: I'm excited to read. I had the, I, I was lucky enough to meet him at the 95 Long Beach tournament. He was there somewhere. I have, you know, an actual 35 millimeter picture with me and Benny you know, back in 19 August of 95. So that was kind of cool. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, that's a classic.
0: <laughs> I know I got, I got to find it. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of my pictures got ruined we had a, a flood in our basement. back ah, in, Yeah. Like 90, I, I think it was 99 or 2000 and lost like thousands of pictures that got wet so wow. I'm hoping that's I, not one of them. <laughs> I, I have heard uh, off my own travels and all. I should
1: probably ask. I, I have heard that they're doing a, a documentary on Benny now.
0: Ooh, okay. I'll keep my eyes open for that really one. Really
1: great. I, I, I'm sure that any anything that has to do with his life story will do. Will be very successful.
0: And then now, obviously, let's talk about your your newest book, your your own biography that just came out. Kind of talk about you know, how long that was, the planning was for that, and when when you decided to finally write about yourself.
1: I had started to uh, when I was doing biographies. Uh, uh, my first biography, of course, was 1996. Uh, prior to 96, I all of my work was done in films, was motion pictures and television and I had never done a biography, no, actually my first was with Linda, it was the Bruce Lee story in 1988. I started doing biographies after I did that, I started doing biographies of Doreen and all these other biographies, and I thought, you know, I should probably start doing my own life story, putting it together Really, for my own benefit, I had questions of my own life that were troubling me, and I started making notes of my childhood and areas of my childhood that I had lost and people. And I started, you know, I said, I'm really starting to make a journal here of my life. So I started putting that together and the scenes together in my head of where my life had gone and, and my own problems in life. And I've had plenty of them. So then I realized, I said, you know, you've got your own biography here. It's an autobiography. Well, I put it on the shelf because I, I could only work on it for a little while and then I'd get an assignment writing something else. So when I came to this last one, Uh, after I had done, uh, what's the last book I guess I did was, um, was it Rick Avery's book? No, it was Bob White's book, Bob Bob White's uh, life story, Life in Session. Uh, I was now starting to look at new projects. And I said, what? I said, I've got this one on the back burner. If I don't pull this thing off the back burner now, I'm not gonna get it done. So I started working on it. And that's when my wife had a terrible thing happen with her eyesight. She almost lost her eyesight. Uh, she got an infection in her eyes. And, and I had to bring in another writer to help me uh, do a lot of the heavy lifting, which was Michael Miller, the very gifted author. But it's basically my life story in Kempo. It's my life as a child, start from the beginning, from birth to the, to the cradle till now. It uh, has a lot to do with my life in Hollywood, uh, in fi- in the film industry, film and television. It has to do with my childhood. It has to do with my Kempo journey. The main thing about, about why the title... Oh, and Ed Parker Jr., uh, Ed, Ed Parker's son, did the cover. One of the greatest artists of our time. He's oh, done yes. a lot of great artistic work on a lot of books and uh, a lot of things that he's done as an artist. He did the cover of the book. Uh, the title of the book, Journey Beyond the Mountaintop, is basically... I've heard a lot of people over the years say that there's never a destination in martial arts. It's an endless journey with no destination. And I don't believe that. When I started my martial arts, I did have a destination. I wanted to become a black belt. At some point, that became my goal. And I think there is a goal for many people in martial arts. We set a goal when we start anything. What do you want to accomplish? Well, I go to college. I want to get a degree. I do this. I want. Well, I wanted to become a black belt. And when I became a black belt in, uh, in Kempo, Ed Parker had succeeded in removing fear from my life. When I, well, actually that happened when I made Brown. But when I became a black belt, I had reached the top of the mountain. And what I saw on the other side of the mountain is what the life that I later on became to live, came to live after 1965. And it opened up a whole world to me that I never knew was there. And I would have never seen had it not been for my becoming a black belt and having fear removed from my life. I'll tell you, had had fear not been removed from my life, I don't know what I would become. Probably some guy working in a cubicle somewhere, afraid of the world and not reaching out to the, to the, uh, what I've been able, I haven't accomplished a whole lot in my life, but what I have accomplished, I attribute to the fact that I was able to remove fear from my life through Kempel. And um, so that's the the message in my book is that once you achieve, the, the once you get to the top of that mountain that removes all the, 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 the main negative hurdles in your life, there's a whole world that opens up for you there that you can then, as I did, journey to the other side of the mountain where you can't see the other side of the mountain until you get to the top. And so that's why the, the, um, that's why the title is what it is. It's basically my story of how I climbed that mountain and what became after I reached the top, and what happened when I journeyed down the other side of the
0: mountain. I love the title, and I think my I think my copy is supposed to. According to Amazon, I think my copy is supposed to be here on Saturday. So. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to find. I, I was, well,
1: I sent I sent you that brief video from the Legacy Award, yep. and watch that. You've got a, a general overview of the
0: book. So yeah, correct. So now, just kind of a, a few a few last questions, just to kind of wrap things up here and stuff, and, and maybe some fun things. But first of all, obviously, you've been in martial arts for a very long time. Is there any like specific philosophy or maybe a quote or two that really stand out that you've kind of held true to yourself all these years maybe a quote from bruce or or mr parker or just something something you come up with yourself some kind of philosophy that you you really you kind of really enjoy
1: well, the philosophy is kind of, I don't, I can't think of a quote offhand. I, I'm a, I'm a really stickler. I'm a great fan of quotes and I've got even a file on my computer of quotes. It's the name of the file, quotes, nice. but I can't think of one offhand in uh, martial arts. There's a lot of smaller quotes, but nothing that stands as a central driving force in my life, except what I just explained that um, martial arts will, will be a vehicle for a person to improve themselves by removing negatives. that that is keeping them from growing. And that's what uh, the martial arts did for me. It it, it removed roadblocks and stumbling blocks uh, what's the old the old saying not to, to use a stumbling block as a stepping stone yeah and ma- martial arts has allowed me to, to use those stumbling blocks as stepping stones and allowed me to climb that mountain which I would not have climbed without the art so that's probably wraps up my philosophy it, it was a great vehicle for removing roadblocks in my life well, let's say a,
0: a friend or an acquaintance or someone asks you uh, for they're thinking of joining martial arts you know, any specific style whatever they they're there, either' For themselves or maybe their kids, what what advice do you usually give someone like that?
1: Well, I don't recommend that kids join martial arts that use weapons. That's the first thing I would say. Okay, um, there arts like a scream and things like that. That's fine for adults, but sometimes I'll see um, uh, you know kids with sticks and things, and I don't I don't prescribe to that. I think that martial arts is a great vehicle for children to to learn mainly to learn a lot of things about respect, mutual respect, and, and physical conditioning, and a lot of those things, self confidence. And it's, of course, and all of those things that martial arts uh, you are going to teach. You don't want a child to become a bully through martial arts, and that's important for the child to learn the distinction between someone who's joining the art. You know, Ed Parker once said to me, he said, people join the martial arts for two different reasons. Basically, you get the bully that wants to become a better bully, and then you become the victim of the bully that wants to no longer fear the bully. Those are the two people. You don't have average, normal people. I've often said this in talks that I've given. I said, you don't have some guy come home and say, you know, Martha, uh, the bowling league has just ended uh, uh, tonight, and I've got a couple of free hours now during the week. You know, I think I'll go down to that karate school down the street and learn how to kill people. (laughs) This isn't something that a guy that's leading a bowling league comes up with. There's a driving something that drives us into martial arts. With children, it's usually the parent that is bringing the child. Sometimes it's a child that's seen karate and says, oh, I want to learn that. Or then another kid is like, but a lot of times it's the parent. When I had my own school, I used to have mothers come in with their child and said, I want you to teach my child discipline. I want you to discipline to my child and teach him. I said, wait a minute. That's not something I can guarantee you here. That's something you have to do in the school and the counselors and the church and the Boy Scouts and all that. I'm teaching self-defense here. As a sideline, your child's going to learn some respect, but I'm not going to become the bad disciplinarian. That's not what I do. And um, so a lot of times parents are bringing the the, the the child who's having problems, they bring them to karate. Sometimes it works, but for the most part, I think kids kids come in to learn physical, you know, Uh, You know, the physical aspect of the basics of martial arts. You, You asked me about what martial arts I would advise. I would advise going to martial arts that's going to teach you good basics, good, solid, strong basics, how to kick, how to punch, how to maneuver your footwork, how to stand you know, how to block, how, you know, learn basic, because that's what's going to, that's what's going to save your life in self-defense.
0: So this next question, this one, I'm kind of excited to hear your answer, being an author yourself and and you've written so many great books. Do you have a favorite martial arts book yourself that you've read?
1: Oh, gee. (laughs) Well, I would say that my, my favorite martial arts book, it's a short book, but my favorite martial arts book is Zen in the
0: Martial Arts. Joe Hyams. Yep. Joe Hines.
1: Joe was a, was a very close friend of mine. Uh, I I knew Joe for many many years, and Joe was a remarkable human being, uh, a mentor of mine in writing, and um and a and a good friend, and a very accomplished martial artist. And uh, his I understand from his his wife Lisa, and I have no reason to. To, to say this is wrong, but that Zen and the Martial Arts is the highest selling martial arts book in the history of martial arts every year. Really? And I think that's probably true. And, and the reason why is because Joe touched on a book and wrote a book that crossed over. Anybody in any style can read that book and, and gain from it. They cannot gain from the Journey book so much unless they're in Kempo. And, and I thought that Kempo would have a great crossover readership, but it didn't. It stuck to Kempo. But Joe's book had a wonderful crossover. People in JKD read it, and Shodokan read it, and Kempo read it, and Aikido read it, and Su Hong's people. It had a great crossover readership, and that's why it sells so many copies every year. Beautifully written book, and uh, as I said, Joe is one of the, the all-time great, wonderful human beings I've ever known.
0: I think you're the fourth or fifth guest that has mentioned that book. So it's it's, it's one of my top favorites too. So I, yeah, I I'm, not it was a great book. I'm not surprised.
1: I'm not surprised. Yeah. Well, a beautiful
0: book final kind of fun two-part question to, to wrap things up here do you have uh whether it's just a guilty pleasure or whatever but favorite martial arts tv show and or favorite martial arts movie i
1: don't have a tv show it is a favorite okay. uh i do have um my, my favorite martial arts movie is Enter the Dragon. I think it's the best martial arts movie that was ever made. Uh, as you recall from my book, Unsettled Matters, a lot of people don't know this, but I asked them, I say, what do you think made that movie? you think it was a script? And they say, well, no. I said, "What what's the story of that movie? And they say, well, it had something to do with the tournament, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it did. Uh, <laughs> who was in that? Well, uh, uh, there was, well, there was that guy. That, they can't tell me, that, but they one thing they remember above everything else, is bruce lee's action scenes yep. you know how much of that movie is bruce lee's action scenes how much 11 minutes seriously 11 minutes of that movie if you oh. took a stopwatch and ran that movie and started at any time bruce is up and running 11 minutes of that movie made that movie the greatest martial arts box office movie of all time wow and it's all based on bruce lee's athletic martial arts performance not his acting his martial arts performance because his acting scenes he only had what half a dozen yeah he didn't act in that movie it wasn't any acting at all but his 11 minutes of martial arts you know performance made that movie the biggest box office smash of all time i'm going to preface this by saying that prior to martial arts movies mm-hmm. because th- th- there were movies that came out before is that I didn't think you know Hong Kong's been putting out those movies for a long time right I used to go as a this is in my book when I first started martial arts they didn't have martial arts movies, but they had samurai movies oh, and okay. Toshiro Mifune had movies like Sanjuro and Yojimbo and those movies that I got hooked on uh, Toshiro Mifune's samurai movies. And we used to go to the Toho La Brea theater and sit there and watch those samurai films. And if you want to watch great action martial arts, watch mufuni's Yojimbo and Sanjuro. See if you can find a DVD or find him somewhere on the internet. You want to see great action with a sword. It's, and a great character. That's all subtitles. Yeah. It is is Mufuni's. Samurai films, and I was watching those in the early '60s. That those were the first great martial arts movies ever made. And then, of course, uh, after that came uh, Bruce Lee. And then from there, we've had them. They come, they come in waves, right?
0: True, that is true. I actually own Yojimbo. Jimbo. I bought that years ago online. Well,
1: they, they- you know i i i love that whole character i had it down where i could you know when he's walking away and, and he shrugs his, his right shoulder he rolls his right shoulder over mm-hmm. to get to get his D up i had that down i had and i love the character he would always sleep before a big fight he would always eat through i mean he, his whole character to me that whole um roaming samurai whole thing that he had that that uh, he was a, he was a sword for
0: hire kind of guy,
1: but he also had a heart where he would help out the, the, uh, the underdog.
0: I just love the whole
1: character of that
0: guy. I need to rewatch that. So, so one last thing I just thought of, you know, being a Kempo guy, what what were your thoughts on, on perfect weapon? You know, did they, do you think they portrayed Kempo well on screen?
1: I do. I I think that they did an excellent job with that. I think Jeff Speakman uh, did a a marvelous job. And I think that uh, a lot of the choreography that they had came from uh, uh, Jeff Speakman and Ed Parker. And I I think maybe Brian Hawkins maybe had something to do with some other people that were on that set. I know Lou Voiler worked on that set, some of Brian's guys, because Brian Hawkins and Jeff Speakman were very good friends. Mm -hmm. I think they, as I recall, they went into a limousine business for a while together, driving a bunch of limousines for Hollywood. Well, I think it was, they did a great job on that, on that uh, film. Yeah. Marvelous
0: film. Yeah. I still, that's that, that was my first experience seeing American Kempo when I decided I need to learn this art and, you know, I had had heard about it and read about it in black belt and seen stuff about Ed Parker and Larry Tatum and everything. But, uh, that was my first time actually seeing it. Obviously, didn't have YouTube back then, so <laughs> when that movie came out, I was like, "Oh, that's really cool. I need to."
1: Yeah, and it, and it opened up the door for uh, Jeff to make uh, a number of, of of movies that followed. He he had a long string of movies after that. I wish Jeff would get back into yeah. acting. He's a he's a uh, he's a gifted, multi talented individual. Yeah, uh, I,
0: I agree. But I, I, unfortunately, I don't think he ever had. You know, Perfect Weapon was the most successful one. The other ones were didn't do as well. I mean, a lot of them were straight to video. But he, he was. I mean. So was it Street Night, I think, was the next one, and there were some other ones, but...
1: Yeah, they, they, you were, know, they were
0: decent movies.
1: Unfortunately, that's the way it is. You know, when when a, when a new guy comes to the film screen, to the to the screen, you've never seen him before. The first time you see a movie of an actor, of a great performance, is the best that they're probably going to be. Because then people are used to them. They're doing things and they're moving and that people are used to seeing it. The first time you see Ed Parker move is the most impressive time you'll ever see him. It's like, wow, what in the world was that? And then the next time you see him when he walks out to the floor, you kind of know what's coming. Mm-hmm. And so it's that first impression. I think that it's usually the person's best film. I know, wasn't that the case with Chuck Norris? Good guys wear black. Wasn't that his first movie? I think so. Yeah. His first appearance in television was me. I got him on the Julie Andrews. Did you ever see that episode?
0: I didn't see. The, I saw the video clip of it. I didn't see the whole episode, but I saw the video okay, clips. Well,
1: so. I think that's the first job that Chuck ever had on television. Might not have been. Might have been his first appearance. I don't know. It was in '72. I don't know when they made Good Guys Wear Black, but, but then I think. With Chuck, it was the same thing. It was his first movie, and with with Claude Van Damme, wasn't it? Uh, Bloodsport was that his first movie?
0: Technically, it was a, it was his first starring role. He was in that uh, No Retreat, No Surrender. I think okay. it was. Yeah, he played did, the evil Russian.
1: <laughs> did Did anything ever surpass Bloodsport? I'm
0: sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, as far as like Die Hard martial arts fans, probably not. But I mean, he did stuff like Time Cop and Death Warrant and Hard. You know, he had he had a few that I think did well on the box office. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, my 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 point is that that martial artists, even Bruce Lee, would have had a hard time topping Enter the Dragon, right. and and. Uh, and, and it's just that way, you know, once you've seen him after that, uh, you know, you, you get used to it and you got to come up with something new that's going to wow the audience. And there's not a whole lot of new that Bruce was going to come up with right. with End of the Dragon. He put it all on. He didn't. He left he left it all on the field, you know, as they say.
0: Are you surprised we haven't seen more Kenpo on the screen?
1: You know, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. You know, Kempo isn't known for its kicking. Right. Uh, When we first, when I first started in Kempo, we were basically hands. We had a great kicker, Tom Gow. Chuck Sullivan was a a really, still is a good kicker. He's a guy that could kick way up in the air. But we didn't have, Kempo's never been known for their kicking. Been known for our fast hands and our techniques and all, but not really known for kicking. And so much of movie making in martial arts movies is kicking. True. Uh, when I did the Julie Andrews show, that's the reason why I, I didn't have Kempo people. I know when I saw Ed Parker after that show, he said, How come you didn't come I said, Well, because they wanted high kickers. And John Natividad and Chuck Norris, John Natividad had won the internationals. And John Natividad was a guy who could get up in the air and do those spinning back kicks. And that's what they wanted. They wanted to see a lot of those high kicks. And, and, um, you know, and I realized, uh you know, I couldn't come up with a Kempo guy that could do. Oh, I did. Actually, I called Chuck Sullivan. I said, Hey, would you be willing to, he said, I can't, he had a job and he couldn't leave his job. But I think that's why we haven't seen so, as much Kempo is because we, we're so much hands and with Kempo, with a martial arts movement, you need a lot of kicking.
0: That makes sense. Now, now that you mentioned, I think the after American Kempo the, or I mean, after perfect weapon, the last, you know, the first one after that, I remember seeing just a lot of hand technique was probably like the, the born identity with, Matt Damon they had some really good hand technique in there, but, and then since then there hasn't really been a lot other, I suppose like, you know, the Ip Man movies, there was, you know, a lot of hand stuff in that with Wing Chun, but makes sense though. (laughs) Oh, there was kicking in, in, in um, Perfect Weapon, but obviously, you know, Jeff also had a other backgrounds other than Kempo, too. So,
1: Yeah, but as I recall, most of the fight scenes within what Jeff was doing was mainly hands. His upper body yep. it was probably 70-30, 80-20, 70, maybe?
0: Yeah, I'd say 80-20 easily. There was the, the beginning scene that wasn't even him when he was a younger version, when he kicked the football player in the head. And then, yeah, there was a, a couple kicks and like the, the one club fight scene beyond beyond that, it was, yeah, I'd say 80, even 90 percent hands. So and it was there's great. a young
1: actor. There's a young actor coming up named Eon Lauer. He's one of uh, Brian Hawkins's black belts. And uh, Eon is in the third journey book um, as one of the honorees and he's been making a lot of movies as an actor, but Eon also trains in other styles. Okay. I think he's a third degree now with Brian and uh, with Brian Hawkins and uh, Eon's made a, a number of movies. He's a very uh, he's, he's a gifted performer. And uh, he reminds me a lot of the guy that appeared in, um, in, in the movie uh, uh, The Piano, not oh. The Piano. The pianist. Well, he has that same look. Yeah. His face, he reminds me of him when I see him. He was Academy Award winner. I forgot his name right now. Anyway, he, he has that look. He's a very His face is very chiseled. He's got a very distinct face when you see him. Anyway, he's been making a lot of movies. There's another fellow. There's a number of them that have been coming up. James Bennett is another one. James mm-hmm. Bennett is, a, uh, is from Ireland. He's a very, very gifted martial artist and kempoist, and he's been making a lot of movies. And I, I think he's got a career in front. I think both of them have a, a career in front of them. James, uh, they're both uh, bodybuilders. Okay. They're both gifted Kenpoists, uh both good martial artists. So we, we do have some people in kempo that are on the horizon to make some, do have a possible chance of making some great movies.
0: I'll keep my fingers crossed. So. Well, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to do this. I know it went a little longer than we kind of planned, but I, I, I tr- right. <laughs> truly appreciate it. I Lo- loved hearing so, your stories. Hopefully and... <laughs> you'll have fun editing it,
1: and uh, you'll have a good finished product, and let me know if you need any fillers.
0: Oh, for sure, and it might end up being a, a two-part, you know, depending. <laughs> That's okay. So I, I think Ed, Ed Parker's was going to be a two-parter also when I interviewed him. We, we went about the same amount of time, almost 90 minutes, so it'll... <laughs> oh, uh,
1: uh, uh, you interviewed Edmund?
0: Uh, yeah, Ed Parker Jr., yep, yeah. Oh,
1: great. Yeah. He's a, he's a, he's quite an intellectual.
0: Yeah, that was a fun interview. I did that one last week. That was a fun interview, so yeah, I got, yeah, I got some good stuff.
1: Yeah, well, then you know all about his artwork.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. he I, I'm. I plan on linking his website to my uh, on the show notes and everything. And yeah, same with you. Anything you want me to link in here, just let me know. And
1: well, when you read the journey uh, journey down the mountaintop, you'll read where I give Edmund quite a. Uh, I think Edmund in his 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 uh, axial arts is going to have a big place in Kempo's future.
0: I think uh, so. Yeah, we talked quite a bit about that. That's yes, very, very interesting.
1: it's balanced out, especially for children because uh, he's found a nonviolent effective martial arts that I think his father would have leaned towards, he might've said this, I don't know, uh, towards in his later years. I think uh, the the Arts that he's worked on for many, many years with his lovely wife, I think that's gonna have quite a, um, uh, it's gonna find a nice home in Kempo when he
0: finally puts it together. I hope so. It was, it was a great conversation.